Every time I read about a Hollywood celebrity opening up for us about their struggle with mental illness, I think, go F yourself. It always ends after they open up and share and garner sympathy and love. It always ends with their saying, we must end the stigma of mental illness. Go get help. Go F yourself. There is no place to get help. What these celebrities should be saying is Medicare for all. That includes free dental and mental. Free dental and mental. I like that. Free dental and mental. That would that would mean putting health insurance companies and for profit mental health treatment centers and rehab centers out of business. Do you have any idea how much Mitt Romney, Senator Mitt Romney and his Bain Capital make? Do you have much money he makes from for profit drug treatment centers? Of course, people like Mitt Romney want to remove the stigma associated with mental illness. That way, you'll mortgage your home to pay one of his bogus rehab centers for treatment. That doesn't work. Mental health care in America should be free. It has to be free. But that's still not going to solve the gun problem. They're mutually exclusive. Gun, gun deaths and mental illness, not related. Mental illness, despite what Governor Greg Abbott and, and, and Ted Cruz and the NRA and the gun manufacturers want you to believe, mental illness has nothing to do with gun violence. Gun violence is not a symptom of mental illness. Gun violence is a symptom of 400 million guns spread throughout our community and counting. Gun violence is a symptom of greed. Gun manufacturers need to grow their profits by finding new markets. So they need to scare us into believing we can't trust our fellow Americans. The trick, the NRA and people like Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott are all trying to play on the American people. The trick that they're trying to play on us is that we need to be protected from those suffering from mental illness as opposed to protecting the severely mentally ill. They want us to fear the severely mentally ill because that is cheaper than helping them. Plus, there's the added benefit of lining the pockets of gun manufacturers by convincing people to buy more weapons to protect themselves from the severely mentally ill. It is a win-win for everyone who is evil incarnate, like Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Headline. There is no connection between gun violence and mental illness. Real mental illness. Real mental illness. 
is like cancer or heart disease. Mental illness is life threatening. And it has as much to do with gun violence as multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease does or do. According to a report in the Center for American Progress, when mental health experts examine mass shooters, they rarely find any history of mental illness before or after they fire their weapons. There are indications that might mimic clinical mental illness, but most mass shooters do not fall under the category of, quote unquote, severely mentally ill. It would be nice if the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, understood what mental illness means. He clearly does not. And the NRA and the Republicans are literally banking. They are banking on most Americans and most members of our press not to understand what severe mental illness is. He doesn't know. Greg Abbott doesn't know what severe mental illness means, and he doesn't care. And as I mentioned earlier, the Texas governor can't wait to blame the severely mentally ill for these mass shootings. He can't wait to blame the severely mentally ill, but he does nothing to help them. Instead, with Texas dead last in providing mental health care, he redirects funding away from mental health clinics towards sending more troops to the Texas border this week to protect us from his imaginary enemy of migrant families seeking asylum coming into our country and destroying it. These are paranoid delusions, paranoid delusions causing Greg Abbott to see imaginary caravans of invading migrants who he thinks are going to destroy this country. He is clearly suffering from an actual mental illness that needs treatment. Alan Minsky joins us. He is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, PDA. They are running progressives around America. Welcome back, Alan Minsky. Great to be here, David. Let's go big and then we'll drill down to local elections. Donald Trump. Mm. God damn it, Alan. I mean, mm. he's not worth my time. He is, for, you know, pretty much a convicted rapist in a civil court. I mean, I know there are shades of how they ruled, but this guy is a waste of my time. And yet... I watch the town hall on CNN and I think, mm -hmm. really, you're going to force me to watch uh, the wonder years when I could be watching the Americans. Look, here's how I look at Trump. Trump is, I mean, and it's important, too. We, we should, shouldn't forget that the celebrity apprentice 
came of age during the last writer's strike. Now, this is not to blame the writers. The writers should go out on strike, of course. I was on the picket line today with them today uh, in out at the Netflix headquarters in, uh, in, in Hollywood. Um, however, um, we are faced with a situation now where companies like, well, uh, platforms like CNN are looking for higher ratings and Donald Trump will deliver them higher ratings. You remember what whatever the asshole's name was, Les Munoz said. Rapist. 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 There we go. Right. A fellow rapist of Donald, like Donald Trump said of his fellow rapist that he might be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. OK, so I look at the Trump phenomenon and also the rise of anti small D Democratic oligarchs around the world. Right. And there was a book, um, How Democracies Die, I think, that came yeah. out right after Trump was elected. And they talked about what 21st century coups against democracy look like. And what happens is like a Bolsonaro or a Trump. Now, in both those cases, so there's one one terms try to, to set out dismantling the apparatus of their democracies failed in, in one term's time and were, were knocked out of office. But then you look at places where democracy is a little weaker, even than Brazil. And you have Orbans, you have uh, Erdogan out in Turkey, you have the the team in Poland and you Netanyahu, have, Netanyahu and Israel, Netanyahu and Israel. But again, a little bit of a different model there. But then Putin, I mean, Putin, in many respects, of course, fits as the as the guy who set the template here for the 21st century. You win a democratic election and then you set about dismantling the operation and apparatus of democracy and you stay. Now, what is the appetite to eliminate democracy? Right. And I think we really have to question the complicity of our not just our oligarchs, but our entire investor class, okay? And that fits with the idea of CNN does better, right? The whole sort of apparatus and operation of capitalism, a portion of it, contemporary American capitalism, I probably shouldn't be using the C word because I'm the head of PDA and not DSA, but here I am, right? And there is this appetite to have your stock valuation go up, okay? And Donald Trump is being fed to us right now and there was one poll recently, a bit of an outlier that showed him ahead of Donald Trump, but I'm mean, ahead of Joe Biden. But I don't think anybody would be too surprised by that right now. I mean, we have a current president who really seems incapable of holding the bully pulpit. That's pretty much high up in the job description for a U.S. president. Right. Donald Trump can hold the bully pulpit. He can hold people's attention. Yeah, emphasis on the word bully. There we go. So um, but again, the general appetite. For the collapse of democracy is the wealth inequality levels in the United States, and they're spreading around the world. You cannot have this level of wealth inequality in democracy. It's oil and water, okay? And you have a, you have an incredibly dissatisfied general population with the state of things. They will look to elect out of office via democracy the ruling class who currently have acquired more wealth and power politically and economically than any time in our lifetime. And it continues to increase. Let me that. push back on this because we had Howie Klein, who, you know, found, founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. And he brought on Jessica Anderson, who is running to be a delegate in Virginia. And he's already succeeded in being a TikTok superstar. TikTok superstar. And she's pretty much got the Democratic nomination. And one of the questions I asked Howie and Jessica, I'm going to ask this to you. Does a rising tide lifting all boats inoculate a society from becoming fascist? Let me let me offer up maybe not that racism, 
white nationalism, uh, religious zealotry can be a, a, an excuse, a motivating factor in and of itself. And that no matter how wealthy or poor a, a society is, people are still going to hate people and want to destroy them for their religious beliefs, the way they were born, their sexuality. You know, Harlan Crow is a billionaire. He he's got his his boat is rising higher than everybody. And David he, Brooks on David Brooks on PBS, whatever that little dialogue session they have on the PBS News Hour with David Brooks on it once a week. He says Harlan Crow's a really nice guy. Sure. Because David Brooks is a POS. But there we so, go. Yeah. so here's here's Harlan Crow with all his money. And he hosting Hakeem Jeffries, too. Yeah. Wanting to control women's bodies. I mean, mm -hmm. if a, a billion dollars doesn't keep you from being impotent and hating women. Oh, yeah. But you, you started off with the question of a, a rising tide lifting all boats. Look, we have. First of all, contemporary America. America is a very distinctive country. Um, and the period in American history where you had a rising tide lifting all boats would really start uh, in, in the modern technological era with um, the Roosevelt administration. Which was saw the rise of fascism. It, which saw You saw Lindbergh. You, you saw isolationism. I, I, don't think, I don't think that the Roosevelt administration in Europe can be blamed for the rise of fascism. No, no, no I'm saying. But the fascism you, was happening in Europe. You had the height. I mean, the, the glory days of the year. That was very much in reaction against Roosevelt. But, but then you but if you look at the era of the sort of dominance of that model of capitalism. So some people call it like state managed capitalism or or progressive Keynesian capitalism, right? Uh, that goes through to the civil rights movement, and you actually see a lessening of the ferocity of American bigotry and structural racism over the next 30 to 40 years. I mean, you can argue that one of the reasons is the Soviet Union, of course, was gonna win the hearts and minds of people around the world because the United States was such a god-awfully racist place. Some people would see that in, in developing countries in the third world. But at any rate, the rising tide lifting all boats in the context of the United States, you can say helped minimize and mediate that. So I agree with you. I, I do agree with you. And I do think that it is class struggle. But well, in, in the post-World War II social democratic Western European social contract producing very wealthy societies in Western Europe has been largely devoid of war. And those countries used to fight each other all the fucking time for that, you know. Well, that's a whole other. Yeah, whole other thing. Devoid of war. Uh, I'd like to talk about that in a second, because that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. No, the seconds are short. Tell me when we get to it. Uh, I just want to revisit w one more time, and then let's move to the post-World War II economic and political order that resulted in Ukraine, and maybe a little in Serbia. No, that, that was part of the Soviet Union, and Yugoslavia was part of, uh, you know, the Balkans, which were all. What I'm saying is that, that, that there has not been a major war in Europe due to NATO and this this economic neoliberal world order. That well, we, there just also wasn't a lot of drive towards militarism or internal strife that would generate the kind of conflicts that could produce conflicts between the countries in Western Europe when they surpassed. This is true, the United States was the military hegemon ruling over them in that part. So yeah, it's a complicated thing. But 
But nonetheless, you don't generally see prosperous uh, countries with very low Gini coefficients sparking wars. Gini co that's in in income inequality. And it's a combination of prosperity plus low Gini coefficients. You actually have right now in Eastern Europe as a legacy of the Soviet empire, still very, very, very low Gini coefficients, some of the lowest in the world, even better in Western Europe. You know, countries that, that like the, the ex-Soviet satellite countries, they didn't really have their own oligarchic class. So the wealth disparity isn't that great, but they're poor. Okay, so there's a lot of strength. Okay. So if you have prosperous countries with very little wealth inequality, believe me, it's the best model for humanity to try to proceed in. Okay. Let me challenge two uh, pieces of conventional wisdom and get your response to it. Conventional wisdom is that America spends more on weapons than any other country, than all the other countries combined. But studies have come out, probably funded by the Carlyle Group and defense contractors, <laughs> showing that we spend more money on defense, but we get less bang for the buck. That when you look at China, you look at other countries where wages are lower and you have slave labor, that they don't need to spend as much on military as America does because they can get more bang for their buck. And they say that we're actually, even with Ukraine. This is stoking the new Cold War, right? Right. That we're, we're actually spending, we're supposed to spend 2% of our GDP, they say, on weapons, and we're actually spending uh, less on <laughs> weapons. This is going to be the new argument uh, to spend more on weapons. Is there any legitimacy to that? Well, look, um, one of the problems the left has to come to terms with and to be wise to you, you the way to reduce the military budget is not to reduce the, the, the outlay of cash from the government, but to reappropriate it to elsewhere. I would argue right now, I'm about to go to a conference next week on high speed rail in Washington. Therein is a perfect example. You'd have a national um, manufacturing boom. You would lower carbon emissions dramatically, including in some of the most sensitive areas for the maintenance of carbon emissions, most notably airplanes there, but also in trucking, by the way, to transportation. Transportation is still the highest carbon producer in the domestic United States of America. I mean, we should be doing like a Manhattan project on the technology to get us off of carbon-based uh, energy sources. Right. We also, in the United States ourselves, should be building up state-of-the-art, best-in-the-world, high-speed rail network uh, with lower carbon emissions dramatically. It'd be a great, and, and look, if the private sector isn't gonna fund it, take uh, one-tenth of the military budget and apply it to that. Right, right. There you go. The other piece of conventional wisdom is that the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, the CHIPS Act, all these major pieces of legislation that were passed in the first two years of the Biden administration, they fall painfully short of what the progressive movement needs. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said this has nothing to do with inflation. A Republican picked chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, said fiscal policy, the spending that went on during and after COVID and all these spending bills are not the cause of inflation. That has become, thankfully, received wisdom. 
Is that correct? Yeah, well, I mean, it's simply the, the truth that the inflation rate was sky high before that spending kicked in, and it has actually declined since then. Now, of course, you know, inflation is a compound um, index. So, yes, prices are higher than they were. It's an annual rate is what you look at. And I think it's coming down to about 5%. I think some of the high-end industrial products that had their supply chains interrupted, like automobiles, those parts are now flowing back. And you don't have as much of an interruption in supply chain. It is hitting households, though, with some basic goods, as you people, everybody, anybody who's gone grocery shopping, which I trust is probably everyone here. Um, has noticed that the prices continue to go up. And of course, there's been weather disruptions and the war in Ukraine impacting the global food supply chains. And, you know, even the Trader Joe's is not fully replenished in some of the items that it had previously, right? And, and so prices have gone. There is and, no, the thing that Powell can do, and what Powell, by the way, could very much be damaging Joe Biden's electoral, which, by the way, I'm not a fan particularly in recent months, especially of the Biden administration, but I sure as fuck don't want to see Donald Trump return as president. And what Powell is doing, right, it's the closest you get when it's monetary policy to the inverse of priming the pump. And he's, he's pulling us down to a recession. And if, if Joe Biden is running against Donald Trump as a president where he can pin the R word on him, that, that election, the betting money will go over Trump. So the conventional wisdom, and I've never seen it like this, at least in the past 20 years, where... Everybody agrees, except for Joe Manchin and the Republicans, but the, the experts say this government spending, this fiscal policy is not responsible for the inflation. However, a new poll came out last week showing Trump leading Biden. This is the first poll showing a an outlayer, but yeah, the ABC poll, yeah. Mm -hmm. The ABC poll. Mm -hmm. Trump leading by five points, which is a landslide in this climate. And I'm now beginning to read in the financial pages, people saying this economy now belongs to Joe Biden, that inflation, while it's coming down, is still significant. And it's his fault. It's because of the spending. We're coming up on the debt ceiling yeah. Limit. I mean, look, the um, is there I mean, any is there any reason to justify the Republicans holding uh, the line on the the uh, debt ceiling? No, there's not, absolutely no, absolutely no. In terms of fighting nothing. inflation, no, nothing at all. Absolutely no. And and uh, um, uh, look, look, animal spirits come into this, right? You do have whether MMT is correct. Modern, modern, monetary theory and its right. prognosis about how the where the line is drawn right now around deficits is ridiculous, right? Um, you know, the way bond markets are going to respond to higher deficits is a real thing because the people who are making the decisions are not enamored of or haven't accepted the truth or reality of MMT. So we see that. And it plays out as a real impact. And I think the thing about something like MMT, and again, really just the opportunity to be like a Republican except be a Democrat, that we're gonna we're gonna try to use government spending to lift up workers in the middle into the middle class, to have a general population of money in its pockets that can lift up the consumer society. It's a fine model for growth. Right now, though, Republicans have been able to 
uh, grow deficits through, in the Reagan era, of course, military spending plus tax cuts, and in general, since then, just with tax cuts and tax breaks in particular for the investor class and for wealthy people. And that's produced huge deficits when Republicans have been in power before Trump. That did not happen as much during the Trump time, even though he created the tax cuts. We basically had still the rising economy coming off of the deepest recession we've known in our lifetimes, right? So, um, you know, I don't, I think MMT, yes, we should get it, we should get into power and we should try it out and prove to the world and show where, you know, we can lift up government spending and not worry about deficits for the public good. And of course, I think it will generate taxes because there'll be more money generating around. So maybe it won't even be a test case. It will just show that using progressive spending in governmental policies is a great economic idea. Now, um, I don't think any of that has any validity. What I think will hurt Biden is our growth is down to 1.1%. If it goes to recession, which a lot of people are predicting it does, that will be very damaging. I think a lowering inflation rate, a very low unemployment rate, um, will not be damaging to Biden. And if it, we stay out of recession, I think he'll be able to take Trump on as it is. Now, he's going to probably- Can we have a recession if we have the lowest unemployment rate since 1969? Yeah, recession is just defined by two quarters of, of negative GDP. What do the American people, do the American people think the economy is doing well, even though we're being told we're not in a recession and unemployment? I don't think people think the economy is doing well. They don't think the- no, because even with wages going up uh, because of tight labor markets, it hasn't gone up as much as inflation. So no, nobody nobody thinks we're particularly having a, a jazzy uh, a jazzy economy right now that people are happy about. Is it and, conceivable for the GDP GNP to go up without everybody participating in its success? Um, in yes, other words, so you can report you can you can say that the economy is on fire. There's record growth, but all the the money, the profits are in the hands of a few families. Well, I see in the chat and in the conversation, we're dancing around uh, the question of Trump's rise, Biden's viability. I think Biden probably wins the election if the Supreme Court hands him another gift, which would be the cancellation of student debt. If Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer can get it together and cobble together a bill and declare Democratic Party support for the exact same program that Biden had shot down by the Supreme Court, You'll get the youth vote, you get the vote for the codification of Roe, and you'll get the vote to preserve democracy with the John voting rights. But all of that together may not be able to overcome a big R that Trump will paint on his head. And he'll cite how well the economy was doing before the pandemic when he was president. With the whole and the public buys into this idea that that you know the Republicans are prudent, they know how to drive the engine of American business better than Democrats and they're going to own the economy better. So I think that recession ticker is going to be a very important thing. OK, let's start with the good news and then we'll go to the bad news, because there is good news as as executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. Tell me some of the candidates who you endorsed during the 2022 midterms who won and are outperforming, doing better than you thought they would do. Oh, wow. Well, this is the day where, where you know, uh, we're, we sit down the Medicare for All roundtable. I woke up. We had the Medicare for All roundtable a week earlier than normal because the bill is getting introduced on Wednesday. And there's going to be a town hall with Bernie on Tuesday with Jaya Paul and Bernie. And we get to see which House members are voting for it. There are a few who don't quite have their act together and haven't signed on. There are one or two disappointments. I don't know that I want to call people Well, I, I, We'll get to that. I, that was going to be my next question. Let's talk about let's give the good news first. Who Who, who are you pleased with? 
Well, first of all, I'm super pleased about Brandon Johnson winning his election. Same Let's day. go Brandon, right? Absolutely. There we go. And uh, and and the Supreme Court in Wisconsin saying they hopefully Helen Jim will continue the uh, victories of progressive mayors across the country. Um, and then, you know, one of the things we all need to think about is what, how can we, you know, and look, there is obviously a lot of social crisis in American population centers. So how can we as a progressive movement, you know, put put our minds to it and really try to generate some better results for the people living in major population centers. And uh, St. Louis also has a very uh, progressive now city council and mayor. And um, Cori so, Bush right, is right. their congressman. Right. Fantastic. And, um, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to get a scorecard on new Congress people when the Republicans control the House. So that's one of the reasons I brought up Medicare for all as a scorecard. And by the way, I hear good things. A guy who flew way below the radar screen was a guy who won replacing Yarmouth in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and now how he took how he keyed me into him. And yeah, he seems to have a great voting record. And he went way below my radar screen. Um, and I'm going to forget his name. His first name is Morgan. Maybe people can look it up and put it in the chat. And so he seems to be doing well. Um, you know, PEA was very close to Maxwell Frost, who's now a, a big, big celebrity. And, uh, you know, we'll see what. what Howie does not like Maxwell Frost. Does not like Maxwell Frost. No. I had dinner with Howie the other day. Howie and I have one or two differences, but generally we're on the same page. Everywhere. Right. Howie talked about the chat Morgan in Kentucky about how great he is. Right. So I'm cribbing from Howie Klein. Always good to crib from Howie. We'll get to the bad news in a second. Uh, Diane Feinstein made a, a return to the capitals. A lot of people thought that was a debacle. Mm -hmm. She is not running for re-election. Who do you... I'm a progressive clusterfuck in California, and I think it's unfortunate. I mean, if I can speak my mind, maybe I'll get in trouble if I do here. It's um, Lee. You're going to support I love, Lee, I love, right? I, I love Porter. I love Lee. I'm not that big a fan of Schiff, obviously. Um, and um, yes, I'm very, very much leaning towards supporting Barbara Lee. Um, and I do have a hard time getting over the fact that Katie Porter's seat is likely to be lost to the Democrats, um, unless, again, we can have the kind of shift that PDA is all about in American politics and that we work towards all the time. Um, but, you know, the shift isn't really designed to impact prosperous districts in areas like Orange County. It's to draw the working class together. Well, wait, hang on. You're, you're plowing through something that my listeners might not know. Katie Porter flipped a red district in Orange County. Yeah, I think two cycles ago or three cycles ago. But she's popular. You, you do like Katie Porter has done, and she's been fantastic. She's been very high profile out, making very clear and eloquent kitchen table arguments to the American people. Her political star should rise and rise and rise. But I just. But we need you know, to keep that district. We need to keep that district. So and, she'd be uh, better. She'd be better off. She'd be more helpful if she stayed as a congresswoman and held on to that district. Also, we're talking about a statewide race in California, obviously for U.S. Senate to replace Diane Feinstein. Adam Schiff has already been announced that he's running and he's endorsed by Nancy Pelosi. And there's, I don't want to talk too much about background, but Schiff will be the sort of establishment Democratic candidate. Barbara he's Lee a, is the best. Barbara Lee is from Berkeley. We know that the district and, and, well, and district she has a Barbara, famous vote. What's her famous vote? the one person to vote against the war in Afghanistan. Right. So hands down that that's she gets. She, of she, course, but, but, but not to diminish Katie Porter, how great she is. OK, so the problem, though, is is you run both Katie Porter and Barbara Lee. You're pretty much handing the, the I mean, there's a chance that one or the other could get into a runoff with shit. It's a very Democratic state. But the Republicans 
probably will have a candidate who will rise above their other candidates. You'll have the progressives split their vote. It will be shift versus the Republican. And how does this work? We have jungle primaries in California. So oh. it is conceivable two Democrats will be running against one another. Right. And it is, it, you know, it's a tricky calculation. And Katie Porter would be a great center. Barbara Lee, for what it's worth, has said that she would be uh, a one term senator. What I think Katie Porter, this is just horse race stuff, but what I think Katie Porter's calculation is, is that Schiff would win over Barbara Lee, but she believes she could take Schiff in a runoff. I don't know that that's true. I think Barbara Lee could beat Schiff if they get into a runoff. And um, uh, and then it, it, Schiff's fundraising capacity is considered exceptional. Porter's is considered very strong and Lee a little bit less. So probably consultants are telling Porter what that all means. I think that all has to be thrown out. We have very few open races in California. We have, there doesn't look like there's going to be a competitive primary in the Democratic ranks. This could hold center stage in the, in the state. And you don't know what could happen because people people start paying attention. Okay, so Barbara Lee is saying she'll be a one-term senator. So why doesn't Katie Porter just wait? Um, again, she probably thinks Schiff would beat, and then Schiff would be impossible to knock out because once you become an incumbent senator, in California, the amount of money you have to raise to knock that person off the, off the charts. So that's probably our calculation. Also, Ro Khanna will probably run for president in um, 28. He's endorsed Barbara Lee, and he'll run for- Now, Senate. why do you like Ro Khanna? Well, let's leave Ro- for, Oh, I'm talking about Ro as opposed to Barbara. Um, why do I like Ro Khanna? Ro Khanna's, um, why do I like him? What has he got, worth about $100 million? Yeah. Okay. Fine. He has um, defined himself as a progressive member of the House. He has um, he leads uh, led. Sorry, led is not. We don't have the House. Uh, a committee that produced some excellent hearings last session. Um, and he, what he's done. Okay. First of all, the the um, Chips Act was originally introduced by him as the Endless Frontier Act. Okay, now why is that important? It's our first industrial policy in my lifetime. Right. Ro Khanna actually does have a very good sense of the big picture of American politics, which isn't that common uh, from, uh, I mean, there, there are people in Congress like Eric Swalwell and Ruben Gallego is going to run for Senate in Arizona and hopefully win. He's a decent progressive, better than Swalwell, but they're pals. And they see themselves as a brain trust in a kind of third way manner. And Rose sees himself as a brain trust in the left to the left of that. So, you know, yes, there are things about. All right, so you invited me. We're talking with Alan Minsky. He's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. And everybody should donate to the Progressive Democrats of America. The progressives are slowly, slowly winning. We're doing better. We're doing better than we did a couple of years ago, right? Well, we're, we're the organization that drafted Bernie Sanders to run for president back in 2013. Right. And we pride ourselves on being uh, an organization to really look at the big picture of things, get some strategy going. And look, we are a little frustrated right now with the idea that, you know, we're not going to have a president that's going to be supporting Medicare for all anytime in the next five years if things play out in the reasonable expectations the way they're expected to play out. Uh, that's very dissatisfying. We don't think we'll have adequate response to the climate emergency. The prison industrial complex will continue. We'll have a massive wealth inequality maintained. All of those things have to be addressed. Young people in America look to the progressive movement to be the movement that is going to change American politics and produce a much more 
economic and socially just society here in North America. Okay. And and like any political movement, we have to deliver tangible results and people are going to be tired of us. Right. Can I? So we have a heavy lift. Okay, we have some questions from our studio audience. Thank you for these questions. They mean a lot to us. Before we get to the questions, you asked me to speak at the Progressive Democrats of America Sunday meeting. One of the things I said talking about unions, and I mean this to the core of my very being. In some countries, it is against the law for the head of a union to make more than the rank and file. I don't believe that unions should be run by millionaires. I believe you run a union because you're just as hungry as the people you're fighting for. In fact, if you're not as hungry as the people you're fighting for, you're going to end up saying things like, it's complicated. We'll get them next time. There's nuance. You're acting like a child. I want my union rep to know what it's like to have the threat of eviction hanging over their head. Would you agree with me on that, Alan Minsky, executive director of the PDA? Well, it's, I can tell you, David, that I, I live as the head of PDA, but we're not a union. We're a civil society organization. But yeah, I um, am tired of the noblesse oblige, the paternalism mm-hmm. in the Democratic Party that says the Kennedys and the Roosevelt's are going to come down from the mountain and lead us into prosperity. No, we have to take their money. That's what the Democratic Party. And and so. What I'm saying to you is there needs to be a litmus test, Alan Minsky, executive director of the PDA. And it's a very simple. It's the Cori Bush test. Uh There we go. Did you ever have to live in a car? Cori, I'm getting angry. I'm sorry. I love you, Alan. I'm not. I'm I'm getting worked up here. Let me preach it at the Church of Feldman. Well, let me dial it. Dial it back here. You want to represent the Democratic Party? Did you ever live in a car? If you haven't lived in a car, I don't care if you built. Excuse me for one second. I agree, but I agree with you. But you have flipped from labor union leaders to. Well, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if my union, if I want my union boss to be as broke, poor and frightened as the rank and file, I expect the same thing from my Democratic candidates. I want to see what you're worth, what your I don't care what your position is on MMT or Afghan. I want to know what you're worth. What is your wife worth? What are your children worth? And what are they going to be worth when you leave office? Look, um, one of the things. Why is that? Why is that not an important litmus test? Oh, David, it's beyond that. We support a lot of candidates. You just brought up Ro Khanna across the country. Ro Khanna is worth at least one hundred million dollars. He's not going to fight for me. Very few um, politicians who ascend to any of the higher offices come from poor communities let alone working class communities. It's very uncommon and it's very difficult. Why is that? 
you go to run for office. And even some of our the Republicans, allies, hang on for one second. The Republicans, they run the they run the salt of the earth for office. It's the Republicans. They, 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 no, they, they run they run I know they run millionaires who wear flannel shirts. I know that. But you, you don't have the Ivy League elitists in the Republican Party. By, by, by the way, you guys were talking about the head of CNN being a Republican donor to Trump. And if you're talking about the guy who comes out of the Discovery Channel, Malone. again, I want to make the point. He is a major Democratic Party. No, owner. Malone, who owns Liberty. Oh, Malone. Isn't that Liberty? Yeah, Liberty. But Liberty is a big owner of Discovery. But the guy who was the head of Discovery, who manufactured the purchase with Warner and, create, and basically is considered the head of things, who made $250 million, which, by the way, is basically the, the rate increases exactly annually that the writers are asking for. When right. Person has that money, right. right? He, um, he, the um, fact that he gives to Democratic candidates is speaks more to the problem with the yes. Democratic Party yes. than yes. it does with right. him. Like, look, they're, they're, they're the problem right now we have, and this is a little bit something too that you know, Bernie, you should get Bernie and talk to him about it. You know, I love I would, Bernie. I love Bernie's God. Ralph yeah, Nader Bernie, and Bernie yeah. Sanders are God. But we we are in a bit of a precarious moment in the progressive movement when we we have to be realistic. That our movement got lifted up by the success of Sanders campaigns. The presidential, you know, my joke during the World Cup day, the Men's World Cup, was that the Men's World Cup. Is the is the scheduled event for humanity that draws humanity together more than any event, with one exception, the U.S. presidential race. Okay, it is the biggest stage, bar none, on American politics, and now we're going to be absent from it because of Bernie. We got established to where I believe we've had these three political tendencies in a two-party system. You have the right-wing Trumpian reactionaries. You have the neoliberal center running from the Romney wing of the Republican Party to the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. And then we have the progressives. Now we're not going to be on that main stage. And that's a really important thing. We got to make sure we have our voices elevated. We have to run strong congressional candidates and down ballot candidates, get our positions out there. And then, I don't know, wait for the door to open or a crack somewhere to occur where we can rush in and, and get in front of the whole of the American population. And people love us, man. And, you know, it's a crazy fucking party, David. You know, when you look at the public policy positions, on economics that the progressives stand for. And I believe in a Jacobin Magazine article today by Mark Paul, uh, there's some citation of statistics from Data for Progress. Overwhelmingly, the American people, um, the progressive economic positions have majority support. Inside the Democratic Party, even with all the professional managerial stooges inside the Democratic Party and the rich donors, it's like 80%, 85% level of support. What fucking party in the world doesn't support the agenda that their overwhelming base supports. But right now, because of money and politics is what you were getting at, we're pretty much blocked out. So we have to return to elevating getting money out of politics however we can. Well, and the way you do that is you get the rich out of the Democratic Party. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. I call it a friendly takeover with some hostile expulsions. I'm not really happy about Quick questions. Yeah. Uh, Alan, can you please... Uh, talk about the degree to which corporate Dems are suppressing progressive primary candidates this cycle. Well, we haven't really entered the cycle yet, but of course, um, the sitting um, um, House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, founded a pack with Josh Gottheimer. People don't know this. Uh, 
which was intended to protect House um, incumbents from progressive challenges. So it goes very deep. You know, if people didn't follow the dynamic in the last cycle, a ton of money came pouring in against progressives and the channels that were largely used were uh, channels that advocate for uh, America remaining a strong ally of Israel, regardless of who the head of state is in Israel. So APEC and DMFI were the channels through which, and, and crypto dudes, poured money against progressive unions. Right. And um, it was an overwhelming amount of money, and we lost some races we could have won because of that. We did win a few where the money came against us. But, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's no doubt that the investor class and the political class of neoliberals, including Republicans who then drop money against progressive candidates, they want to see the progressive movement go away. Okay. And final question, then we have to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Is it po- this is from Nancy? Is it possible for Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, or Schiff to drop out of the Senate race at this point and keep their House seats? Is it too late? Well, of course it's possible, yes. It's quite possible. Okay. Um, Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. And every Sunday, there's a meetup that everybody who has Zoom should attend. How do people attend your Sunday meetup? Right. And, and well, um, you can sign up for it. Um, I probably can drop it. I don't have it open anymore. Uh, but you could uh, go to pdamerica.org and you'll find a way to, if, especially if you go there, um, yeah, yeah, actually, you can go there right now, and there should be one of the first things up in the rotating blog posts, a way to sign up for our meeting. Now, uh, this Sunday, we have the second sponsor of the Medicare for All bill in the House joining us, Debbie Dingell, a congressperson from Michigan. So she'll be joining us because of the rollout of Medicare for All. She actually has COVID, and she's joining us, so good going, Debbie, and hope you feel better. And uh, so she's scheduled to join us. And then we have a guy, Ryan Harvey who is now one of the heads at Public Citizens Global Trade Watch about the Indo-Pacific Trade Pact that's being negotiated by Biden. It's not as bad as those old trade pacts, but it's nowhere near as good as it needs to be. Well, speaking of Public Citizen, which was founded originally by Ralph Nader, I should mention, Alan Minsky is executive producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, heard nationwide on Pacifica. And the Ralph Nader Radio Hour exists because of a conversation I had with one David Feldman when I was driving home from work one night on KPF, from my job at KPFK Radio. We were going to fill in for Susie Weissman, and I, we needed somebody to give an alternative State of the Union address. And I said, almost hesitatingly, what do you think about Ralph Nader? Because I didn't know David that well at the time, and I didn't know his politics, and I assumed, like, just assumed David was a liberal Democrat and all Democrats hated Ralph Nader. I loved Ralph Nader. I love Ralph Nader. I love Ralph Nader. Can we get Ralph Nader? And then you said, I know how to get Ralph Nader. And Steve Steve Skirvin. That's how it came about. There are two arguments that I can win. I, I, and you can, you know, there are just two arguments that I know I can win. One is veganism. Mm -hmm. Veganism, you, I will wear you down to admitting that if you're not vegan, you are morally bereft, spiritually bereft, and that you're wrong. You can't win the argument with me. You, you, the only way you'll have to concede that you're a flawed human being. And the, the other, ar- that's, that. 
And the other argument that I will win, that I, I will rub your face in gravel, and that is Ralph Nader is responsible for George W. Bush. Oh, and, really? and, and, I, and, and I'm telling you, I'm going to hold my temper. If you believe that, you're ignorant. You, and, and, uh, and maybe I have to review the facts with you on a future episode of this show. Ralph Nader had nothing to do with Al Gore losing, and most importantly, nothing to do with Iraq. I've heard the smuggest pricks mm -hmm. say to me, no Ralph Nader, no war in Iraq. And then I say to them, then uh, Daschle, Tom Daschle was Senate Majority Leader, you asshole. He was a Democrat and he gave the war authorization, you asshole. Who was the head of the Foreign Relations Committee? The head of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, in the Democratic Party was that, don't tell me. Are you, Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Great point. Mm -hmm. Ralph Nader had nothing to do with Iraq. Uh, I was finishing strong, and then I couldn't remember that Joe Biden was head of the Foreign Relations Committee. So I now, could be wrong. I'd no, you're right. Up. I'm depressed now. I'm nothing. Hey, <laughs> Alan Minsky, thank you, you so much. Maybe next week or the week after? I'd love to join you again. And bring uh, me some candidates and we'll raise money for them. That'd be brilliant. Okay. Take care, David. Thank Great you. you. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump.